This is episode 121 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Kate Hayner. She's an SLP for the last six years, mainly in SNFs in Missouri. She has supervised several CFs and mentored several other SLPs looking to transition from schools to the medical setting. Uh, she also performs documentation, auditing, and training. She has collaborated with the registered dietitian for over 80 SNFs in regarding transitioning to IDSI in 2019. She PRNs for multiple other SNF contract companies, acute cares, and assisted living facilities. She enjoys serving a multitude of patients and advocating for safety and quality. She is certified in MBSIMP and is the founder of the soon-to-be Mid-Missouri Dysphagia Diagnostics Mobile Fees Service, providing mobile swelled studies to SNFs in Mid-Missouri. Her why is her dad who passed away nine years ago from leukemia. Because of that, she wants to improve patients' quality of life no matter where they are in their journey. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Kate. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I am doing pretty good. We have had a lot of different kinds of weather in good old Missouri. We had tornadoes last week and rain and ice and snow in the last 24 hours. So they always say in Missouri, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes and you'll see all four seasons in the day. Oh my God. <laughs> That's great. Well, I live in Buffalo and as you can see behind me, we're getting pretty much a blizzard. So this is the story of the life in, in Buffalo. So yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me, Kate. Yeah, no problem. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about uh, speech therapists advocating for instrumentals in rural hospitals. Awesome. All right, so we've kind of touched on a lot of these topics before, but this is a culmination of one that we haven't touched on before. We've talked about kind of doing the whole gamut in rural settings. We've talked about advocating for instrumentals, but it's interesting because you think the the first thing you think of with hospitals is, oh, I'm going to work at this hospital and we're going to have all sorts of MBS and fees. And I think people are realizing that even hospitals don't, some hospitals don't have fees, some hospitals don't even have MBS. So yeah, I'm glad you're here to talk about it, Kate. Yeah, so I'll kind of jump into, I am full-time into nursing homes, but I PRN in assisted livings, nursing homes, and then two hospitals. So one of the hospitals is a small, or a small for-profit, and it's a 24-bed acute swing bed. Um, it's great because there's no productivity um, they have a board of directors. It's it's really small, and so you really get to know the people. And then I work for a larger non-for-profit. They're a level three trauma center. Um, we have 75% productivity, but I've never, ever gotten in trouble for my productivity because we don't have enough speech therapists. So there's one full-time speech therapist in this, uh, this hospital's 148 bed. They do have a ER, an ICU, a TCU, but the other three of us are PRN. So 
I think a lot of days it's overwhelming for her. Both of these hospitals do have MBS access, but both of these hospitals do not have fees. That's been kind of the reason I've worked in these hospitals since 2015. So I think just I work there on a monthly basis. And so there's been so many situations that have come up over the last five years that I said, hmm, I wish I had access to this or how do I go about bringing information to these hospitals for us to do our jobs more efficiently? And so that really kind of lit a fire for me to research and to think that, oh, somebody else will make this change. I don't have to make this change. I can just sit here. So the first way I advocate is, of course, well, let me back it up. So the first in the small hospital, they do not have a protocol for recommendations for speech where the larger hospital, we have an automatic evaluation order that comes in for any patient that has a stroke, a TIA, pneumonia, either left lower lobe or right lower lobe, evidenced by a CT or a chest X-ray. Anyone that's been extubated for longer than several hours and any trach. But in the small for-profit hospital, They just go off really if the patient says they have trouble swallowing. So it's really been night and day difference even between these two, even though they're both smaller hospitals. So usually I start off in both stating that I need an instrumental after I've done a clinical bedside evaluation. And so I've brought up research that we always need to do a clinical Swallow examination, the Langmore and Logaman article in 1991, they talk about when we have access to instrumentation, the CSE should always precede it because instrumental testing is not only diagnostic, it's an intervention. It enables us to form valuable hypotheses that guide our diagnostic procedures and they prepares us to test the efficacy of interventions and prepares us to determine whether the patient can participate in appropriate interventions. And so I always do a bedside because we can kind of tell, is the patient awake? Are they alert? Can they follow commands? Do they even want to participate in an instrumental evaluation? Um, I've had several patients that they don't care if they have one done or not. They're going to do what they're going to do. And especially in the non-for-profit hospital, you know, we don't want to be charging them if, if that's not something they desire for their treatment. So another, I like to pull the Murray 1999 summarized the clinical swallowing examination too. Uh, he wrote that the CSE allows a circumscribed exploration of a patient's muscle function, sensation, and the airway protective functions. This direct inspection allows the clinician to develop a profile of health, disability, or probable risk for disability. And findings from the clinical examination are combined with information gathered during the historical data collection and interview session. At the close of the clinical swallow examination, the clinician should be able to develop confidently a management program for the patient or determine the necessity of further instrumental assessment. And so I like those two because, again, it shows that 
as a clinician. If it's, you know, a pretty obvious answer, you know, the patient's just, you know, fatigued and they're having trouble chewing or they're an advanced dementia patient and, you know, a diet modification to a softer texture seems more clinically appropriate, those types of things. Um, I don't necessarily advocate for an instrumental, but for the majority of our patients, they're a lot more clinically complex. And so I use that need to advocate. There's, a, there's always a need for a deeper picture, um, which is usually how I try to swing it the first way. And the hospitalists and the doctors are seemingly receptive to this. They'll say, okay, in the larger hospital that I work in, I try to take them down um, immediately to radiology, which kind of brings me to the next reason for advocating for for instrumentals is using the lack of one testing availability to kind of pivot and justify for the other. So I kind of have brought into the small rural hospitals attention. Well, let's back it up. So let me paint this picture, um, which I know a lot of the smaller rural STs difficulty with, and that's the availability of radiology. In the larger hospital I work in, the radiology schedule is eight to four, Monday through Friday. And weekends, it's 8 to 12. And they aren't there on Sunday. So we don't even work on Sunday. And radiology is also booked for outpatient MBSs at 1030 every day, in addition to inpatient caseload. And then we have outpatient that starts at noon and 1230. So if you have a heavy caseload that are suspected to need instrumentals, um, it can be very limiting to get these videos in for these patients. And that's been a huge frustration where I'll have nine or 10, you know, patients on in a day at the larger hospital. And I don't have radiology scheduling to get them in, or I'll have one that, you know, I do earlier in the morning. And then by the time I see a few patients and I'm triaging them, so I'm seeing who's the most critical, who's deemed MPO, But, you know, then you have the ones that you thought weren't going to be significant and it turns out, yes, they need one and here we have to wait until Monday. So, but in the smaller hospitals, uh, radiology is there once a month. So if I'm called in to have a patient that has difficulty swallowing and I do my Yale swallow protocol, I do a cranial nerve exam. I do a chart review. I just think that they really, really need the instrumentation. I talk to the hospitalist and I kind of go over it's needed and then I get them to order it. But since it takes weeks for the radiologist to be in the building, that patient could already be discharged and home and out of their acute dysphagia. But if aspiration is occurring in these patients, this can worsen them drastically. It can, you know, and I always have advocated it can make them more dehydrated. It can cause malnutrition. I go over my spiel. And so it's been very, very hard, especially in the last year when I've actually really been researching and, you know, really changing how I do care to say I need more of these. And so 
Then when I'm there, when radiology does come, they also schedule outpatient MBSs. So in a day there, I'll have four to five modified barium swallows in a day. And so, and then they try to, because they are billing the radiologists um, on call time to be there because he's contracted from St. Louis in my small, more rural building, they have been scheduling these tests in 30-minute intervals, which, as you and I both know, 30 minutes is not enough time to educate if a patient doesn't have access to speech therapy, isn't going to be able to come in as a patient for our patient. You know, I had a lady who I did a modified on. She had mild to moderate pharyngeal dysphagia. I had to educate to her all about a mechanical soft diet. Thank God she was a retired nurse, so she knew a little bit about modified diets, but I always now have everything printed out ready to go for basically everything, whether it's diets or strategies. Anyway, so she could not afford to take transport to the hospital because in the rural place where I am, she wasn't able to drive. They don't offer transportation like in the city. And so I had to not only educate her about her MBS results, I had to educate her about her modified diet I was recommending and her oral pharyngeal strengthening program, all in that 30-minute window, which did not happen. So now, as a therapist, I have changed the way that they get instrumentals and the amount of time. So instead of 30 minute intervals, it's more like 45 to 50 minutes. I've also, this radiologist has never done AP sweeps. I always thought he was opposed to doing them. We'd never actually talked about it. And so then once I started bringing him the research from the collective, we've actually done multiple. And he said, huh, this is kind of eye-opening. Yay! But this was also, yeah, so a hospital where initially they had asked me if they even needed a radiologist to do a modified. So over the last couple of years, I have really educated them to why I, I do need him. And two, I've done a lot of education to the doctors and the hospitalists that are referring their outpatients to the differences in a modified and a barium swallow because a lot of my patients come in and they have this globus sensation and I look at them and they're 30 years old and they have no neurological history. They have no stroke, everything. They've never had pneumonia, bronchitis. So I'm just thinking, why in the heck am I getting this referral? And so they have a crisp, clean swallow. Everything looks good. And I I said, well, I, I think you probably need GI and not speech. So that's something that I've had to really educate when I've been doing these modifieds. But I've had some other instances come up where they don't have the appropriate equipment when I'm doing a modified. They have the patient sit on this tiny wooden preschool chair and I half the time have to get them up on some kind of cushion so that, so we are actually able to view their anatomy. Um, so when I was looking into how much a modified barium 
chair costs for my smaller rural hospital, it was anywhere from two to $10,000, which when I looked at that, it just got my wheels turning because I thought, hmm, if a chair costs that much, how much could it potentially cost for me to bring fees into this facility? So it also got me thinking we had several patients that, you know, have not been appropriate for the modified because of positioning. Um, I got a text one day that they were going to try to Velcro the patient to a chair and for me to come in and do a modified. And I sent a text back and I said, absolutely not, because number one, I don't think that's ethical. <laughs> number two, I, that's not going to be the natural way this patient is swallowing. So I don't want to capture something if it's not their natural way. So the hospitalist and I do a constructive uh, disagreement about it. And I said, well, have you ever thought of bringing fees into this facility? She kind of looked at me and she goes, what is that? And so then... I kind of explained it to her, what fees is, what modifieds are. When you make that determination between a fees and needing a modified, um, and when you might need both. And I know the collective, MedSLP Collective, has uh, good resources that I've pulled for that as well, and I've provided to them. And so recently, I sent an email to their rehab director. And I just explained the situation and I said, we don't have adequate positioning for these patients at times. With radiology, you know, there's such a lack, you know, cost alone. I said the average procedure, the average modified is $1,200 in Missouri. And that includes the barium. Then you have to pay the radiologist, which their radiology fee is $66. And then you have to, they're paying his mileage to drive there. So I kind of sent him some education about fees and I waited for him to respond. And in the meantime, I was thinking too, you know, we have this ICU at my larger hospital and we should get something going there. And so I really, I went back to, I think there is an article, let let me see. So the name of the article is Swallowing and Aspiration Risk, and it's a critical review of non-instrumental bedside screening tests. And I sent that to the larger hospital, and this is from the Journal of Clinical Neurology, and this was a study that was done in 2018. And they had done a study to determine the presence of dysphagia and aspiration in stroke patients. And it was a search that they conducted using PubMed, Embase, and other databases to determine how effective bedsides are. And so I had sent that to them because in the conclusion of this, it basically says that the literature, they had researched over 652 sources for you know, anywhere from the MASA to the Yale Swallow Protocol, they compared it to MBS and fees. And it just said that the literature is dense with screening methods for assessing dysphagia, but the low predictive value for aspiration risk 
um, after a stroke and they want to try to find a procedure that's, you know, the least invasive, but the bedside is still not accurate. It talks about how um, there's a vast need in these settings to have more instrumentals done and available. Um, and so I emailed them that article and I emailed the article to the bigger, larger hospital. And I emailed it to my therapy director, the four speech therapists that I work with there, and none of them ever replied. (laughs) So I heard a reply immediately back from the the smaller hospital, and they just started asking all kinds of questions, how much would it cost? And I feel like as a speech therapist, you really have to know your facility which I was starting off thinking, I don't think they're going to pay for a whole CART system and to have all these PRN, PRN speech therapists be certified, do their competencies and all the sterilization costs, even though there's only two of us. Because right now we're only getting referrals once or twice a week for these patients. Um, and so I knew that it wouldn't be cost effective. I knew they would shut it down. And so I started contemplating about a mobile system for them because they are so rural. And in the larger hospital that I work in, their sister facility is a level one in St. Louis and is throughout several other states. And they actually already have fees. And so I knew that I would probably be able to advocate for that initially, but I was going to start on the smaller, more rural hospital because the need there is not met. And there are so many patients that need to have access to an instrumental. So I started, you know, researching all the brands out there, such as Atmos, JedMed, Olympus, Pentax, Patcom, which I recently talked to Christoph. He's the creator of PatCom, and he was just a plethora of knowledge on how to kind of advocate and what the details were. So he kind of walked me through that process, and he's just fantastic, and his accent's phenomenal. So, <laughs> But that's, that's not instrumental-based, so um, beyond that. So I kind of sent that information to the hospital, which they were very interested in setting up a mobile fees service. And so they said they were going to meet with their board of directors and they were going to vote on it. But did I have any special training or is this just within the SLP scope of practice? And so I kind of educated him that it's not going to be something that just any speech therapist, even though in Missouri, it's within our scope of practice. So we are allowed to do it, can do. I kind of explained to him in an email, the process of how it worked um, and the timing that it would take to get it set up, the sterilization procedures. Um, and he was, he was pretty perceptive about it. And so they said they were going to vote. I have not heard of if they're going to do it or not yet. This was last week, actually. It takes me a while because I'll talk a little later about my personality um, and how I've kind of used that to advocate as well. But it, it took me a while to get 
you know, comfortable having these conversations and being strong enough interpersonally to do this. And so then I emailed my other director of rehab and said, you know, what have you guys thought about this? And she just said, huh, maybe we'll talk about it in another six months to just kind of, you know, left it at that for right now. But I, I always talk to, to both of the smaller and larger hospitals about the cost of dysphagia in healthcare. I mean, that's significant. That's huge. Um, so I always advocate, and I've talked to several speech therapists, just hit them in the pocketbooks. There's a couple articles that I like to bring up when I talk to people about cost. The first one comes from the Clinical Economic Outcomes Resource, and it's from 2018, and the title is called The Cost of Dysphagia in Geriatric Patients. I believe the study was done in Greece, but it was a retrospective cost analysis of geriatric patients with dysphagia versus geriatric patients without dysphagia. And it was 258 hospitalized patients, 60 years or older, in an acute hospitalized geriatric department. And basically, they compare aspiration pneumonia patients to patients that do not have aspiration pneumonia. And the patients with dysphagia were significantly costlier than patients without dysphagia in both hospitals. And municipality costs compared to patients without dysphagia. And then um, it goes on to talk about how the adjusted annual hospital costs in patients with dysphagia was 27000 It's DKK, so I had to look that up. It's Danish Crohn's. It's their way of monetary system. But it's 27,347 Danish Crohn's, which is 3,677 euros and 4,282 USD higher than patients without dysphagia at the hospital. And an annual health care costs in the municipality, the hospital were 46,000 Danish Crohn's, 6,192 euros and 7,209 USD higher. So if you think about that for every patient, um, there was another study, which I love, which talks about the consequence of dysphagia in the hospitalized patient. And it's by Kenneth Altman. And he basically takes an analysis of a national database from the National Hospital Discharge Survey from 2005 to 2006. And they were evaluated for presence of dysphagia and the most common comorbid medical diagnoses. It says the patient demographics, associated disease, length of hospital stay, morbidity, and mortality were also evaluated. And there were over 77 million estimated hospital admissions in the period evaluated, of which 271,983 were associated with dysphagia. And so it said dysphagia was commonly associated with fluid or electrolyte disorder, esophageal disease, stroke, aspiration pneumonia, UTI infections, and CHF. And it said the median number of hospitalization days for all patients with dysphagia was 4.04 compared with 2.4 days for those patients without dysphagia. And then in their conclusion, it just says dysphagia has a significant impact on hospital length of stay and is a bad prognostic indicator. 
early recognition of dysphagia and intervention in the hospitalized patient is advised to reduce morbidity and length of hospital stay. And so that was from August of 2010, and that was published in a arc of otolaryngology head and neck surgery in volume 136. And so I like those articles to kind of talk to people about advocating for instrumentals to reduce thickened liquid, which can be two to $7,000 a year. You know, improving quality of life is a huge thing um, for these patients, which I always advocate for. And so that kind of is another way I advocate. And lastly, just having the personal characteristics to advocate for your patients. Um, I know when I first started being a speech therapist um, in the rural settings, you know, I was an introvert. I was half terrified of dysphagia, but I knew that I wanted to do the medical setting. And so I just always went into the room and thought, you know, if this was my dad, how would I want to be treated? How would I want the care presented to me? So my mom, she has been in research. She works in research in Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. And so when my dad got cancer nine years ago, we wanted the smartest doctors, the best care, the most and evidence-based research that we could to treat his cancer. But they were also very direct with us. And I feel like that's how we need to look at providing care for these patients having that empathy and compassion in addition to that research and that knowledge base. And I'm always concise and direct. I know Kelsey Day, I think in the, either one of her collective resources, it talked about, you know, presenting information to our doctors saying my patient is presenting, which is wrong with them resulting in why, which is why I need Z to further identify or fix this. And so, you know, I, I immediately applied that one of my head and neck cancer patients, you know, I said, he's, he has a diagnosis of head and neck cancer. He's been losing weight. He's had an increase in choking episodes. They had to do the Heimlich. I need a fees to see and further identify, you know, um, has his cancer returned? Is there something that we can do for him? And that was in the nursing home setting, but this doctor that I've always had to fight with for anything immediately wrote me an order for a fees, which was amazing because two years ago when I saw him, he told me he woke up on the wrong side of the bed and he didn't give a shit about fees. So it was actually amazing to see him change. And then Brene Brown, I always talk about personally having that curiosity and that strength and that creativeness to advocate. And I'm going to read a quote from what she says, but she says, we're scared to have hard conversations because we can't control the path or outcome. And we start coming out of our skin when we don't get to resolution fast enough. It's as if we'd rather have a bad solution that leads to an action than stay and the uncertainty of problem identification. And so I kind of feel like when I read that, that's exactly what we have to do as speech therapists because there's so many speech therapists that I work with that they just, they either ask the doctor and they say no and they never bring it up again. And so I actually will take articles from different research bases or the collective and I put them in their mailbox 
and I annoy them. I come back and I say, hey, like I had this patient who was a Parkinson's patient and he had aspiration pneumonia and the speech therapist did not do a instrumental for him and she just put him on nectar thick liquids and I won't start in on that tangent. Um, but he got aspiration pneumonia again. And so when I saw him and I did do a modified and he did need honey thick liquids for some time and he had honey thick, went back to his assisted living and he wanted to, I had told him in his discharge to do a respiratory muscle training and the speech therapist there asked the physician for an RMST device. And the physician said, no, I'm not going to do that. He's going to be on honey thick liquids. That's the way it is. And the speech therapist messaged me and said, yeah, he's, he's not going to do it. He's not going to write speech therapy order. He doesn't say this works. And so then um, luckily I was able to visit that facility and I loaded up that doctor's mailbox. I wrote a letter why this patient needs this. And his doctor not only wrote an order, but he actually went into the patient's room and talked about the efficacy of doing this in this population and what the results are. So it was very rewarding to hear he and his wife talk about, you know, the doctor came in and said that we could do this. And I don't know what he was thinking before, but, you know, let's do it. So five to six weeks later, he had a modified again and his penetration aspiration score improved greatly. And he was able to go down to nectar thick liquids and he, he only had a two and he was at a seven. So overall, I just think that you have to look at it as a puzzle. And if, you know, advocating for the cost isn't enough, advocating for the lack of resources isn't a cost. I always, if worse comes to worse, say, well, let's send them to a facility that does provide these services and pick your battles and know when you can't provide a service and they need a service, send them somewhere else. And the facilities don't like to hear that, but you have to have the courage to challenge that. And so that's, that's how I usually advocate for instrumentals. And so far it's been recepted well. And I just know that these patients are going to improve their quality of life and their satisfaction, which to me is everything. Awesome. Kate, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. It's been a work in progress. Yes. When I first met you, you were just such a quiet little introvert, as you said. <laughs> and I just, I, I love to hear really how you've just come out of your shell and and it's not for any other reason, but for the patient's benefit. And, and I love it. I love hearing your backstory and your why. And I think a lot of people don't really consider why they do the things they do, you know, and for you, it's personal for me, it's personal. Um, and I know that our patients' families appreciate that as well. Absolutely. I was reading a book. <laughs> it's by Jen Sincero. It's called You Are Badass. And she has a quote in here. When we share what we were brought here to give powerful selves. And I really, truly, that just resonates with me. And I feel like, you know, when you really have the evidence and the passion and your why, you're unstoppable. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I love it, Kate. Thanks. I don't know that I have anything else to add. I think you just covered everything. Well, I think it's it's been, 
you know, an amazing um, honor to be on the podcast. And you always have such monumental speakers. You know, I just get so much out of everyone um, and what they can bring. And I was so honored to be considered to be a speaker. Yeah, of course. Well, and I, I think it just shows, you know, I obviously you're impressive because you work in like 27 million different facilities and I don't know how you do it, but as someone who I don't get much sleep, I don't know how you get any sleep. But uh, besides that, what I love is that it's kind of just you, you push it to see how far you get. You know, you had assumptions about the one radiologist that you didn't think even, you know, like doing modifies or knew about APVU and then now you guys are doing them. So it's, you really just don't know what, how it's going to be received unless you, you approach it. And like you said, sometimes you don't get responses and sometimes you get wonderful responses, but you don't know until you try. So I'm proud of you for trying. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you. All right. Any final thoughts, Kate? No, I think we've covered everything. Um, now I'm just waiting to hear back from if they're interested in a mobile service. So hopefully I have good news to share. If not, I'm going to keep advocating and they're going to be sick of me. Excellent. So. I love it. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Kate. Thank you, Teresa. Have a good afternoon. You too. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.